walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 60. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. Of all the pilgrimage routes I know really well, the one that I came to last was the Via Podiensis also known as the Lapui route and the GR65. It had been on my radar from my earliest encounters with the Caminos de Santiago, but there were barriers. In particular, the French language. Even with the common romantic roots to Spanish and Italian, both of which I had some proficiency with, it just felt intimidating. French is terrifying. I also typically have five or six weeks of summer vacation in my current role, and I have often filled that with a student pilgrimage, walking one of the branches of the Camino in Spain, or a good chunk of the Via Francigena, it's possible to finish that pilgrimage in Santiago or Rome. By contrast, finishing the Via Podiensis would leave my group of students only halfway to Santiago, and I worried that would feel unsatisfying. All of which is to say that this was a lower priority for me, until one year when the timing worked out and I decided to take the plunge. That was in 2013. Since then, I've been back four more times, three with student groups and a fourth to prepare for my new guidebook on the Via Podiensis. While more and more pilgrims are finding their way to the major French roads, which along with the Le Puy route, also includes established routes from Paris, Vézelay, and Arles, along with the Voie du Piment along the Pyrenean foothills, and the Voie Littoral along the Atlantic coast. I do think the language and the distance serve as impediments to many pilgrims branching out here. And it's a shame, because this is wonderful walking, beautiful villages, tremendous hospitality, and it's right in that sweet spot of having enough pilgrims to offer community, but not so many to threaten anonymity in a crowd. Longtime listeners will be familiar with the series of episodes that I produced on the Camino Frances, and I've decided to take that same approach with the Via Podiensis, in part because it's always in my brain and I need regular outlets to process it, and in part because I want to make more pilgrims comfortable with the idea of adding France to their Camino itinerary. Here's how the series works. In each episode, my goal is to speak with one experienced pilgrim about their memories from one section of the route. That typically works out to three to four book stages, which often equates to around 75 to 100 kilometers. To be clear right from the start, the stages are strictly organizational. They are not doctrinal. They're not obligatory. Some people walk 10 to 15 kilometers a day. Others walk 25 to 30 kilometers. Both are easy to do on the Via Podiensis, and you should absolutely take the approach that's right for you. That same framing is always included in the guidebook as well, but almost nobody reads the introduction, and then people get mad about the stages. I even got what I might characterize as a minor threat from a local about one of the stage breaks that I made in a book. Anyway, stages are for decorative purposes only. Don't get mad. Along with that discussion in each episode, I'm endeavoring to have an accompanying interview with someone who can take us deeper into some historical or cultural issue of relevance to that section. 
Thus, over time, we'll gradually progress towards Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, learning about the walk itself, and getting a bit of flavor as well. And unlike the Camino Francais series, which trickled in gradually over time, I've already completed the majority of pilgrim interviews for this one, so my hope is to roll these out every other week with non-Via Podiensis episodes interspersed. As with all things Camino podcast, there will inevitably be a gap between the ideal and the real, but I think we'll be able to keep this rolling through the spring. To get us started, I have two guests in this episode. First, Chloe Rose Stewart-Ulin of solocamino.com joins me to talk about the first four stages of the Via Podiensis, from the Puyanvillet to Omano Brock. After that, I'm joined by Louise Marshall, an art historian who specializes in plague art from the Italian Renaissance, to discuss Saint Roche, or Saint Rock. If you've walked the Camino, you know James, but before you head to France, you need to get to know Rock. So that's the plan for this episode. 90 kilometers of the beautiful Via Podiensis, followed by the story of a saint and his very, very good dog. Chloe Rose Stuart Ulin is an investigative journalist from Montreal, Quebec, Canada, with stories featured in The Globe and Mail, CBC, and many other outlets. She is also a two-time pilgrim on the Via Podiensis, who has shared out advice for future pilgrims on her website, solocamino.com. It's a pleasure to speak with you. I've been familiar with your website, solocamino.com, for a long time, and I appreciate your efforts to share your learning from your time on the Via Podiensis with other pilgrims, and I'm excited to start this series of episodes with you today. And to get us started, could you just talk a little bit about what first drew you to Le Puy and the Via Podiensis and what your experience is with the route? It's such a popular question, and it's so hard to answer still after so many years. But So when I first walked the route in 2016, I had just graduated from university and I was looking for a big trip to, you know, wipe my brain clean and have some new experiences, do some cheap travel also. And I was looking at doing the Camino Francaise, like the more popular Spanish route, or doing this one in France, starting in Le Puy. And I wasn't really sure which one to choose. And then it occurred to me, oh, why don't I just do them both? (laughs) (laughs) which was maybe biting off a bit more than I could chew. But, you know, I took three months to walk the whole thing and it was totally magical. And it definitely served its purpose to wipe my brain completely, completely clean. I think I walked away a different person. And I think you've been back a second time as well? Yeah. So I walked the first time in 2016, doing the 1500 kilometers all the way to Saint-Jacques. And then the second time I just did the the pre-route. And then even then I didn't get all the way to the border the second time. I took it much slower, and that was in 2019. The first question that comes up over and over again on message boards, Facebook groups, almost inevitably involves like, how do we get there? So for you, when when setting out for Le Puy, what was your trajectory? How did you make it to this small French town? So I actually got really lucky the first time. I flew from Vancouver, and I think my round-trip ticket was something crazy that you would never find now. It was like 400 (laughs) bucks Canadian. Whoa! Yeah, round trip. I can't even begin to understand how I managed that. But anyway, not possible anymore. I landed in Paris, 
took a couple of days to visit a friend there and do some last minute shopping, you know, things that I wasn't going to be able to take on the plane or that would be really expensive to buy abroad, like my hiking poles, for instance, and the guidebook that I ended up using for Le Puy, I bought in Paris. And then I took the train all the way to Le Puy from there. That was good. It was maybe more expensive to do the train, but it's a direct route. It's very easy. So that was my preference for sure. Yeah, I think people who are flying in from outside Europe, it's basically either Paris or Lyon. I enjoy Lyon just to cut the train time in half, but uh, it doesn't always work out in terms of the, the cheaper tickets. Well, and I also wanted not just to visit my friend, but like I said, doing the shopping was easier in Paris. I also, I forgot to mention this, but I also got my SIM card and it just seemed like it cut a lot of the stress down of having to figure things out. You know, there's so much online about navigating Paris and navigating the train system and the airport and everything. So just made that choice. Plus, no one is ever sorry to be in Paris for a couple <laughs> extra days. So there's there's no downside there. Yeah, exactly. All right. So we we, we have made it to the puy en velay What do you remember about this town? So I'm, I'll talk more about the second time that I did it because it's fresher in my mind. That's 2019. But actually, both times I spent the night at the cathedral, they have a jit there that you can stay in. And the second time that I went in 2019, I got there very, very late at like 10 p.m. or something. And they didn't have anyone at the reception. They just had, I think she was their treasurer or something who just happened to be staying late there, <laughs> getting some work done. And she was so surprised when I showed up. I hadn't made a reservation or anything. But she was extremely helpful. She let me in. She showed me to the room. I went to bed right away and then woke up, I think, at five in the morning and got started. <laughs> Did you go to mass? I didn't, know. I went to the cathedral afterwards to get my credential and everything. I bought my shell for my bag and everything. But no, I didn't go to the mass either time, actually. Oh, that's interesting. I do find that the, the mass is, uh, is a nice way to start. It's early in the morning. It's not a long mass. There's a pilgrim blessing at the end. And uh, you immediately see, like, however many pilgrims are starting out that day, probably two-thirds of them are there. So it's kind of a cool thing to kick off the day, but it does slow you down a little bit. It, it holds you up until, you know, 7.30 or 8 to get out of town. Yeah, I, the first time I did it, I was not really keen on the religious aspect of it. But as you're walking the route, it's fairly unavoidable, especially once you get into Spain. And I really warmed up to more of those types of communal events and you know the religious activities and by the time I got to Saint-Jacques the first time it was very I was so happy to go to the mass there and have the pilgrim blessing and see the whole spectacle of it that was very special but on the first day I was so tired and it was just like I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to get out there and get as much sleep as possible <laughs> I get it and there's just you've been thinking about going you've been thinking about this walk for a while at that point and you just you want to start walking so the second time in Le Puy, you arrived there very late. I have had that experience getting in there on that like 10.30 p.m. train and staggering the accommodation. The previous time, did you have any more time to wander around and see Le Puy? I think I also got in late, although <laughs> not that late. Well, on your, on your third time on the Via Podiensis, I have two suggestions. One is, you know, check out the mass. The second is check out the other chapel, the very, very famous chapel just behind the cathedral, the chapel of Saint-Michel, the needle, up on this little volcanic spire. 
it's 268 steps up, but (laughs) there's nothing like it. And, you know, even if you get in late, I've sometimes had that be my morning thing between breakfast and departure. And it's a nice way to wake up the legs a little bit. Yeah, I was going to say 286 steps. It's like maybe by the end of the Camino, you're kind of laughing at that amount of walking. But right at the start, that's still tough. (laughs) It's I definitely like leaving the bag in the Jeet when I make that climb. All right, we'll start walking because that was definitely the goal is to get on the road. And we are talking about the first chunk of the Via Podiensis today. So we're talking about the route from Le puy en to Aumont-Aubrac, which mm-hmm. many people will do in about four stages, maybe five stages, depending on how they break it down. We're going to go through it in about four. And the first leg is actually a question mark. I think there's a lot of difference in how people approach it. The most common ending points for the first stage from Le Puy being either Montbonnet, which is 17 kilometers in, or Saint-Privat, which is 23 and a half kilometers. What approach did you take on that first day? The first time that I walked it, I had no idea what my limitations were going to be. And so I chose not just to walk all the way the 24 kilometers to Saint-Privat. I also had a very heavy bag and chose a gîte that was not in the main part of town. So I had to arrive in the town and then walk, I think, like another two or three kilometers to the Gite. I don't recommend that for people doing it their first time, for sure. Yeah. You know, much better to either take a shorter day to Montbonnet, which is what I did the second time around, or pick a Gite communal that's in the city itself. Yeah, I have leaned more towards Montbonnet. And I say that acknowledging that it's a less interesting place. But it does have some nice sheets, and I like the short day. It does make it, for me, it makes me feel more relaxed, staying longer in town, going to mass, seeing some things, especially if it was a, a late arrival the night before. And it does make that first day much more forgiving. Yeah, and if I'm remembering right, there is a pretty steep ascent on the first day out of Le Puy. So if you're not a major hiker who's ready for that kind of activity on the first day, then definitely a sh- shorter days is going to make your life easier. Yeah, you're not kidding. If you look at the elevation profile for this first day, it is Mm -hmm. going uphill all the time. I think it looks worse than it is. You know, I think those first two to three kilometers leaving Le Puy, for me, I feel that uphill and then it feels flatter the rest of the way. It's one of those days where you have to remind yourself, like, stop and look backwards. Yeah, the statues and the spires and everything for sure. And so you've, you know, you're climbing up and then it it flattens out a little bit. You got wide dirt roads that you're walking a lot of the time, occasional footpaths, occasional minor roads, but it's pretty quiet and peaceful. Yeah, I think because I generally get a later start than most people on this route. (laughs) And by later start, I mean like seven in the morning. I mean, it's not that late. I do generally walk alone on these routes, occasionally passing people at the rest stops. There aren't many stops along the way either. I think that the villages, the stopping points pick up in frequency in later stages. But this first one, there's only really one town of any size, and it's San Christophe, which is about nine kilometers in. Mm-hmm. And even there, you know, maybe the bar is going to be open, maybe not, but you can't really even bank on on food at that point. Yeah, that was a pretty rude awakening. I think the first time that I walked it, I didn't realize that at first. So you've got to really plan your food in advance for this route. 
Yeah, you got to be prepared. And coming out of Le Puy en Volet, you're not going to have another grocery store supermarket until there's a small one in Saint Privat, but like there's mm. not another big one till Sog. So you definitely want to be ready with some snacks as you head out. Yeah, I did a lot of like dried fruits. That was my trick. A lot of raisins, surprisingly packed with energy. I do love San Christophe though, because I always remember the big pink basalt stones that go into the blocky church. And for whatever reason, I always just imagine pilgrims slumped on the benches uh, outside <laughs> in front of it, relaxing, you know, the shock to the system of nine kilometers into the first real day of this. Oh, yeah. The slumped pilgrims, that's a really good visual memory <laughs> <laughs> at every stage, at every rest stop. People like massaging their feet and putting on new socks and stuff like that. <laughs> and it is the lunch stop for those who are walking on uh, on this first stage. So it's a good place to hang out, rest. There's the, the WC in the fountain and it's a good recovery point. You're remembering a lot of stuff. Are you taking a lot of pictures on the way and you've got everything <laughs> like labeled? What's going on? <laughs> I've been able to go back a couple of times and I was uh, just there over the summer. So it's pretty vivid in my mind right now. I've got an advantage here. I don't know what it is, but the rhythm of this route is feels to me so much more relaxed that mm -hmm. I do think that there are more static images in my mind of places along the walk through. Yeah, I certainly remember much more about this route than the one in Spain. Just like tactile memories as well, like the sunscreen that I used and, you know, how it felt on my feet and everything and the smell of the dust and stuff. It's really magical. <laughs> Every time I put on that same sunscreen brand, I am like hit by it with a memory. <laughs> it's not quite Proust's Madeleine's, but, uh, it, you know, same, <laughs> same concept. <laughs> so from, uh, so, you know, you get your lunch there at San Christophe, and then you've got eight kilometers more if you're stopping in Montpellier, which you did your mm -hmm. second time. There's a small chapel, like right before you get into Montpellier, the one of the many Chapelle Saint-Roche along the way that's kind of submerged. One nice last little place to stop for a rest and uh, pop inside for a quick visit before heading on to the Gite. Yeah, it's interesting. You're saying that it's submerged and that actually is now helping me remember that spot. <laughs> I, I do remember that. I think it's a good introduction to the general, I don't want to call it like decay but that's sort of almost what it is this along this route in particular there are a lot of religious buildings and just whole villages that have been abandoned and that's sort of your first taste of that along the route that these places are so old so much older than anything we've got here in Canada and the US and they're being kept alive basically just for the pilgrims who pass by yeah, it's an odd location. You know, it's, I don't know, 500, 600 meters outside of the actual village, which itself doesn't really even have a center and it just kind of sprawls across a hillside. I wonder every time I'm there, like, why, why here? Why, why did they build that here? And, and in this like sunken area where you, you got to imagine if it rains hard, there's flooding. I wonder about that every time I'm there. Do you remember where you stayed in Montpellier that second time? Gilles-Lescoles. And I couldn't tell you any details about that spot. <laughs> I was just there over the summer. It is the old village school that's been converted. And you, you go around back through a gate and uh, it's the lower level of a nice big country house, big dining room on the main floor, leave your bags downstairs and then go up to the bedroom. 
And this was a big difference for me, a big change from the first time where I stayed at that uh, Chambre d'Hôte in 2016. Mm-hmm. I stayed with a family and I had my own room and it was a really comfy bed. And that really paid off because I'd had this like really long, crazy first day. And then staying at the Jeep Communal the second time around and just feeling like, you know what, I don't, I don't need the pampering experience. I did 17 kilometers and I can power through. <laughs> but of course, even the Jeeps along this route, they're so nice and they're very well maintained in the vast, vast majority of cases. Yeah. So even though I quite remember this place, I can say that it was probably excellent. <laughs> this is one of those topics that gets discussed on message boards with some frequency, you know, what's the best sheet in Montbonnet? And I think people are pretty happy with wherever they stayed in Montbonnet. And it's another one of the advantages of stopping there is that you've good hospitality, good meals waiting for you at any of the options. And there's not much else. So uh, I hope you like your sheet. There's a cafe that is in the center, the center. Otherwise, you're probably just lounging at your sheet. I did far less sightseeing the second time around as well. I was, I don't want to call myself a little more antisocial, but I was less hungry for socializing and for touristing the second time around. I really was more interested in doing the hike and in seeing the views. Yeah, I can't say much more about the town. I don't, I doubt that I did much exploring. I don't think anyone does any exploring in Montpellier. <laughs> that's not one of its virtues. So th- that's the first stage, and that's 17 kilometers if you stop in Montpellier, which means that the second stage, most people are walking on to Sog mm-hmm. for the second stage, which is a, a, a decent sized small town. And there aren't that many of those in this part of the country. And so that means it's a 26 kilometer day. It is probably the hardest day of the first half of the Shemin, and it's in the running for the hardest day of the whole Shemin. I would second that. And actually, I did cut that day in half the second okay. time around. I stopped at Monistrol d'Allier. Yeah, because it is a big descent into Monistrol, and then right back up the other side, courtesy of that Allier River Gorge. You got to go down, cross it, and then go all the way back up. We're going to start off by headed towards Saint Privat, which is six and a half kilometers into this stage. And I will confess to you here that one of the major reasons that I like staying in Montbonnet is so that I can arrive in Saint Privat right when the croissants are rolling out at the bakery. Certainly I could sleep there and I could still eat them, but somehow having walked six and a half kilometers to earn the croissants from that bakery makes it worthwhile. Oh, yeah. Basically, my whole trip the first time around ended up being centered around getting the right food, (laughs) (laughs) getting the baguettes, getting the brie. I made the mistake at one point of getting camembert for my bread and keeping it in my bag. And it's just, it's the stinkiest cheese. (laughs) And there's no refrigeration, of course, and it's a hot area. And I had to, at one point, have it in a plastic bag hanging out the window of the room that I was staying in because it was so gross and stinky. Delicious, though. Yeah. Oh, it's (laughs) great. Yeah. But you, uh, you don't earn popularity among your roommates when you make that move. Yeah, it wasn't popular there. (laughs) I do love Saint Privat. It is so much more interesting than Montbonnet. You know, you arrive in it and it's almost like a fortified island appearing in the hill in front of you. Sharp descent from the old fortified center of the village. 
you can go up and sit on the walls and just stare off in the distance, look at the hills rippling around in all directions, all covered in trees. It's green. It's just a lovely place to go and, and hang out for a little bit. It is the beginning of the descent. I mean, you go up a little bit from Montbonnet, but then it is a sharp drop down through Lachier and onto Saint Privat for that morning into the village. Yeah, rough day. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful, though. It's a beautiful day. Given how you described it before, I'm imagining that the the place you stayed on your first trip outside of Saint Privat might have been Lesto, which is in a village immediately after. Or it's just a little bit further to one of the most memorable places on this walk, which is Rochegude, which is a teeny tiny village. But there's a big rock and a fort, a tower, a crumbling tower atop the rock and a tiny chapel sitting right next to it. That sounds like the chapel outside Conk, but I know that's, that's a few <laughs> days from now. <laughs> that's a lot more work to get to. This one, you uh, you don't have to work quite as hard, fortunately. But it's lovely. I mean, it's one of the most memorable places, you know, always climb up to the tower ruins and stare through the broken wall and down all the way to you can see Monistrol and the river valley just all beneath you. It's another one of those places where on this walk, you know, you have to detour 50 meters off route to go into the center of Saint Privat. You have to detour 20 meters to get up onto the rock and the ruin. But it's so evocative and neat. That was one of my favorite things about the route in France versus the route in Spain is that frequently the route won't take you through major cities. They'll keep you in the countryside, which is way more interesting and evocative and friendly to pilgrims <laughs> versus in Spain. I think a lot of the route now has moved on to roads and into major cities because that's good for the tourism economy, that sort of thing. And it's just less personable. It can be kind of deceptive when you look at some of the the guidebooks for the Camino Frances, because you will see like however many kilometers are on dirt road. Mm. But there's just a lot of those dirt roads that are running parallel five meters away from the actual road that the cars are, are whizzing along. And so on paper, it looks like this is going to be really quiet through the countryside and the, the reality is different. Whereas here on this route and particularly in this area... You just have so few encounters with cars. Yeah, for sure. And another thing about being next to roads is you won't have any shade for the most mm -hmm. part. So once you're in Spain, if you're walking in like July, then that can be very nasty very quickly. Yeah. And the southern part of this route doesn't have a, a ton of shade to offer either. You know, the corn only goes so high, but <laughs> it's still a slightly different experience. Well, you stayed in Monistrol and we're dropping way the heck down to get there. From Rochegud, it's a really jarring little trail and then continuing down, but at a gentler pace along quiet roads. But it's a 600 meter drop to get into the village. You, you cross like an old bridge built by Eiffel, same as the tower to get into Monistrol. You cross the river. What do you remember at all of that experience passing through there on two different occasions? I remember being very grateful to have hiking poles. Um, <laughs> even though folks were making fun of me a little bit, they weren't for very really? long. Well, they do at the beginning. And then they start encountering these major descents and ascents, but especially descents. And they realize, wow, <laughs> if only I had a little bit more support at the front for these knees. 
My experience is it feels like 90% of French walkers have trekking poles. Mm -hmm. Whereas it's very different for the Americans, Australians, Canadians. So it does seem to be becoming more popular. Well, I think it speaks to the French hikers along that route typically have a lot of experience hiking. They're the people who are traveling from their hometowns. They've done the research. Maybe they've been doing it for years. Mm -hmm. It's especially like a much older subset of hikers. So the hiking poles make a much uh, bigger difference. Plus, you know what? They give you great looking arms by the end. It does make it a full body workout, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't skip arm day. Yeah, that's important. <laughs> well, uh, hopefully, you know, everyone makes it into Monistrol in one piece. And it is a village that has a little bit more going on. So it's got a couple of cafes now, one on the way in before you get to the bridge, and then one that's been right in the center for a while at this point. The bakery kind of comes and goes. So the most recent version of the bakery seems to have gone. And now the village is trying to bring back another. So just perpetual challenge in some of these small villages, keeping some of these services afloat, especially outside of pilgrim season. Yeah. But a nice place to go down to the river, hang out by the river, watch the rafters go by in the summer. Mm. It's, it's a nice place. That's going to be a pretty constant refrain, I think. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, it's. I think there's like one place that pilgrims talk about as an ugly place on this entire route. And I kind of like it. But we'll talk about that's for another day. Okay, yeah. Is it in this little section? Not, not in our section. No, okay. we, we only have the good stuff in this section. Okay. Well, fortunately, when you slept in Monistrol, you got to hit the uphill fresh. We went down 600 meters to get into this village, and now we go 500 meters back up. Along the way, there's another one of those super memorable images that you often see associated with the Via Podiensis, which is this chapel that is built into the cliff face, oh. and it's on the way up. Right. And it's it's like on the road, right? You, there's mm -hmm. no way you're missing it if you're on the road. No. Right. Okay. Yes. I do remember this. Yes. Okay. <laughs> if you miss it, we've got problems. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you didn't actually do the hike. Yeah. I've never found it unlocked, but it's just really striking. Cool to see. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things about this route also is the number of things that appear to be there for pilgrims, but that don't really require any kind of interaction or ask anything of you they're just decor or they're old buildings or that sort of thing yeah and it is kind of unusual that it's locked in the sense that one of the cool things about this route versus others that i've walked is almost every single church along the way is unlocked and open all day right and empty <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you keep going up you keep going up and then you head out into the countryside. And so it's it's an interesting contrast on this stage because it's 26 kilometers. That first chunk of it into Moni Stroll, you've got a lot of variety. You've got some villages, towns, some services along the way. After that, there are a couple of tiny, tiny villages. But otherwise, it's, it's mostly open countryside all the way to Sog. Yeah. So what I do remember about this is lots of cows, lots of horses, lots of sheep. This is where you're really getting into like the farm land. Totally. You're in the Jevedon now. So this is, you know, one of the historic regions that gets a lot of press because of the large beast associated with it. You know, was it a wolf? Was it some other pseudo mythical animal or, or mixed breed that terrified the region for years? Right. Okay. That really is reminding me of there's a big mural maybe of 
like a big wolf maybe is that familiar yeah when you start looking for it you start seeing wolves everywhere like there's a big carved wolf in some privat there's another one as you're heading into sog there's others all along the way they're totally capitalizing on it from a tourism perspective and it's thoroughly kitschy but people were legitimately terrified here 250 years ago 300 years ago yeah fair enough well it's a little bit of a boogeyman i guess <laughs> and we'll finish this relatively unremarkable but pleasant enough walk into sog only other thing that i remember from this stretch is like a farm stand cafe which is one of the nice things about this walk is that a lot of the farm stands or some of the farm stands have cafes they sell you know cheese that they make on site other goods mm -hmm. so i remember very vividly a blueberry tart along the way mm. <laughs> but otherwise we're on to sog it's a good-sized town and it does have a museum on the Beast of Javadon. Oh, really? Oh, I wish I'd done that. Oh, that would have been so interesting. Well, in the abstract, you wish you would have done that. Okay. <laughs> in, in reality, it's basically a, a series of rooms with like animatronics. Oh, And it's like from the 1980s. And I don't know how to describe it. In the US, we have a chain of of restaurants called Chuck E. Cheese's that have these okay. awkward, like animated figures in motion. That's what this is. That sounds awful to me. It's like, you know, <laughs> keep those in the Ripley, believe it or not, or whatever, you know, those places that are supposed to be kind of creepy. Yes. Oh, I'm not into that at all. D definitely unintentionally creepy going <laughs> on in that museum. Although still probably would have been interesting just take the experience for what it is and then talk about it later on your podcast. It's valuable as an anecdote. Here, I'm finally cashing in. Yeah, this is good. Do you remember anything from your time in, in Sog? I remember my one negative experience with a local. Oh. I don't Maybe this isn't the right vibe for the podcast, but I was given fake change and didn't find out until later when I tried to pay with that change and realized that it was like plastic. Wow. And I, I probably could have noticed because it was very obviously plastic money. Like it, you know, it didn't even really look like a euro. So anyway, that sucked, but it wasn't too much money. I think it was like, you know, two or three euros worth. And if that's your worst experience with a local, that's a good trip, yeah. right? <laughs> and from what I remember of this local, like he sold me some sausage and it was delicious food. And it was at the time, it was a fantastic part of my day. And then he got to laugh about how uh, <laughs> he got someone to take such fake change. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it is funny you bring that up just in the sense that whenever I talk to people who don't know anything about pilgrimage, about going back to France in America, mm -hmm. there is a certain assumption about how the French operate, how the French view Americans mm. and I just haven't had negative experiences and I don't speak French. Like I can muddle through like the pilgrimage essentials and I mm -hmm. try and make the effort, mm -hmm. but I have always felt welcomed and comfortable and without any negativity coming my way. Yeah, I certainly had that same experience. And coming from Quebec, you know, I do speak French, but it's French with an accent and I'm not completely 100% bilingual. Mm -hmm. And certainly making the effort was appreciated and I was welcome everywhere I went. And, you know, I almost regret bringing up that one story because it's such an outlier. It definitely does not speak to the majority of my experiences. Well, and that's, you know, the exception proves the rule, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. it is helpful to just underscore how unusual that kind of negative experience is. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I never felt unsafe either. I walked alone both times. Mm -hmm. As a woman in Europe, I didn't have any any worries at no point, not even like a suspicion of a worry. Not even something that might be characterized as annoying discomfort or overattention or any of those more common manifestations? No, I mean, I, I guess you could describe certain fellow pilgrims as not the most sociable people, but never geared towards me as a woman or, you know, no creepiness, I would say, and no danger. I didn't have any of those experiences. That's not to say it never happens, certainly. But um, for three months, actually in total, five months of walking, I never had any of that. That's fantastic. The only other thing that really stands out in my memory in, in Sog is you can climb up to the top of the Tour d'Anglais, the tower in the center. Mm. It's beautiful views. You see everything from the surrounding valleys. So that's one other thing that stands out there. Pleasant town. It has multiple bakeries, which is ultimately the, the most important thing. It's such an important part of the morning to go and get your lunch and really breathe in the bakery fumes. Or even in the afternoon, I got a lemon tart there once. It lives rent-free in my head. I will <laughs> never forget that lemon tart. It's a reason to go back. Yeah. You've got to give a, a, an update on the lemon tart quality every year. Yeah, you got to keep it fresh. All right, so we're halfway then in SOG. The third stage is kind of unusual because, you know, most of the time when guidebooks are mapping out stages, you're ending in a town, you're ending in a village. Mm -hmm. But for this, it's 19 kilometers from Sog to Domaine du Sauvage, which is one big building complex in the middle of nowhere. You're in the Sauvage, which is you know, historically a very rugged, wild corner of France, the kind of place a giant killer wolf would enjoy itself. <laughs> it's not quite as terrifying these days. There are some really nice dirt roads to follow through some tall trees along the way and a, a marvelous sheet for those who book far enough in advance to be able to stay at Domaine du Sauvage. How did you move through this section? Do you remember? So I'm looking at my original book and the one that I did for 2019 and I don't have that town actually dang see this is third trip you're, yeah. you're staying Domaine <laughs> du Sauvage it looks like the first time I did the whole 32 kilometers or almost 33 kilometers and I ended in Saint Alban wow and I remember staying at a place that had just the most delicious local cuisine I wish I remember the name of it right now but it's this dish that's very cheesy and it's with potato and it's really stringy. Aligo. Aligo. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. And it's like a local delicacy and it was so good. It's an experience. It's dinner and a show. Yeah. And I really appreciated having something that hearty after such a long, crazy day. It's filling. That's for mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> and in 2019, I stopped at Chazot, Aha. which almost certainly was a small day, if I'm remembering that right. Yeah, just a little bit before Domaine du Sauvage. Almost every time I end up in this area, it is misty and a little bit overcast. I think I've only had one day of pristine sunshine walking through this region, but it's totally appropriate and a really nice walking. It, you know, leaving Sog, it's kind of undulating ups and downs through the hills. And the biggest thing that sticks out for me in this area is Le Close, where there is one really tall, skinny fortress tower 
that's like mm. perched on a little round rock and then the village that has developed around it but it's just a it's a fortress tower there's no entrance there's no way in or out it's just there looming that's so weird and it's funny it must be such a small little town because in the miam miam dodo there's only one option of where to stay <laughs> yeah these are tiny tiny villages without mm. much along the route so it's not an easy day for food if you don't have anything that you're carrying from Sog. Most exciting new development this past year is that there's a at the village after Le Close, the Gite there has opened a, a little crepe booth. So you can stop for that. And it's a, a nice break. Anytime you have the option to stop for a crepe, you should definitely uh, do that. Yeah, it's a big upgrade. Yeah, my good pilgrim advice. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like crepes are actually like, Kind of hard to come by in this part of France. You know, I don't feel like they're quite as common as people might assume. Oh, damn. They're such a staple here in Quebec. But yeah. not everything translates, you know. Exactly. But otherwise, from there, you're you're just kind of walking through the trees. And it's pretty flat. It's fairly easygoing. And it's really quiet. Very, very few villages. Yeah, and if I'm remembering right, unfortunately, that next day... I went from Chazeau to St. Alban, and that's when a really intense heat wave started on my mm. second trip. You know, I was already going pretty slow, and then I really slowed way <laughs> down as, you know, yeah. on top of that. It was getting up to, I think it was in the 40s Celsius, so I'm not actually sure what that is. Yeah, I mean, once you get to 40, it's like 102 Fahrenheit. Jeez. It sucks. <laughs> yeah. That's what it was like last summer in France during the historic heat wave. You know, it hit 42 at one point and it's not what you want. That's for sure. But at the very least, this is still a section where you, you do have the advantage of shade and trees and some things that will, will hopefully give you a little bit of a break. Mm -hmm. And I would definitely suggest this advice that I kept getting from all the people that I stayed with, especially the families who were veteran pilgrims in their own right. They would tell me to walk in September instead of the summer because it's much better weather and there's fewer people on the route. And yet it's still part of the pilgrim season. So most of the places are still open. Yeah, you know, I think today, May and September are going to have higher numbers of pilgrims. Mm. I do think summer is lower. Certainly the accommodation is a little bit less strained, although post-COVID, everything's kind of out of whack. But yeah, May, September are definitely the primo times to be on the Via Podiensis. Yeah, certainly. Let me tell you a little bit about Domaine du Sauvage so that you organize your, your third pilgrimage through here. Yeah. So the, it, it is this big historic complex that has had different uses over the years. You know, it's linked historically with the Templars. It has more recently been taken over by a collective of locals. So they they manage this space. It has like two jeets within it. It has a restaurant bar in the center of it. It's an island surrounded. There's a, a pond next to it. There's woods on one side. There are wow. these lovely just rippling fields spreading out from it in, in other directions. And the dinner is amazing. You know, you've got the homemade yogurt in the morning. It's a perfect, perfect place to stay. And it is one of those few spots that books up very quickly because there aren't many other options in this area. And it's so good. That's great. I, actually, I'm, you know what? I'm going to have to start taking notes because this is now <laughs> making me uh, 
want to go back. <laughs> well, that's uh, you just listen to the episode when it's online and endure having to hear your own voice. And oh, uh, it's the small torture of doing a podcast <laughs> is having to listen to your voice recorded over and over again. But if the information is good, it's worth it. Yeah. We're heading into the last stage then. And this is the longest stage if you stop in Domaine du Sauvage. It's 28 kilometers to Omont Obrock. And you've already mentioned one of the big highlights now that we're in this section as we head into the Obrock region, which is Oligo, which is that cheesy potato dish that many of the Jeets are going to offer. Mm -hmm. Commonly, you know, Oligo and sausages as the go-to dinner of choice in this stretch. But otherwise, the Obrock Plateau, it's a high-level plateau. Things are opening up a bit, still some trees, but not as much. Very, very much a dairy cattle part of the country. Oh, yeah. The first time that I walked, I actually had snow on the mountain there. So, wow. Yeah, if you're walking even in what feels like summertime, the elevation change makes it winter. So you've got to have the right gear. <laughs> yeah. For anything. Every winter, I will see a photo of the Obrock Plateau covered in snow in January, February. And I will think to myself, oh, my God, I want to go walk through there like right now while it's covered in snow. But I suspect the reality is is worse than the dream. Well, luckily, the one part of that that I was glad to have waterproof shoes was during that section. Otherwise, the waterproof shoes were a terrible nightmare. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, definitely overrated waterproof shoes and not a lot of breathability when it gets hot. Yeah, nasty. Not a fan. But my goodness, yeah, this is a hard day to hit in wet conditions because one of the things that stands out to me is the village of Les Rougettes, which is, a, I don't know, eight, nine kilometers into the walk. Not much to say about the village, but the descent into it, it's mm. basically one of those creek beds masquerading as a trail it's just <laughs> you're basically careening down loose rock into the village just hoping to hold on and not have gravity take advantage of you over those last meters yeah a good day to have your hiking poles there you go yeah <laughs> <laughs> did you walk with poles i do not I am anti-pole for me, and the main reason is that I just don't like having to hold things in my hands. I'm not a hydration bladder person either. Like, I like having a water bottle, and then I like being able to eat periodically and then to be able to take pictures. And so having poles in my hand and having to manage that would just drive me up the wall. And fortunately, to this point, I haven't damaged my knees to the point where it's a necessary move, but you know, the time is probably coming. Yeah. I mean, if you tried it out, I'd be interested to hear uh, how your opinion changes if you ever invest in some. Here's the thing. I love running downhills. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those. To this point, my knees let me get away with all kinds of nonsense. So I'm not yet to where the downsides for me of poles motivate <laughs> me to try it out. I'm going to enjoy it while I can before inevitably age does its work. Yeah, certainly. My first Camino, I felt like I had more of that adventurous spirit and I was going to push my body really to the limit and see how far I could go. And I also, yeah, had moments where I wanted to like run downhill. But, you know, I ended up with a bunch of injuries out of that one. And the second time around, I really felt like, you know what, it's my vacation. <laughs> I've worked hard for this money for this trip and for this time off. And I'm going to have like nice 15 kilometer days, 
use my poles, take barely anything. I mean, I really packed super light for my second one. That's one of the cool things about this route is that it is so easy to carve it into chunks of different sizes that if mm. you're really motivated to do 15 kilometer days, you can absolutely do that. And they're nice, interesting places to stay mm -hmm. and they will cook you your meals wherever you happen to end up. So it's, it's super flexible and customizable. Yeah. And I didn't feel like I was racing other pilgrims, which was definitely the vibe that I had in Spain. If you want to end up at a nice jit or at a donativo at the end of the day in Spain, you have to wake up super early and then not take a whole lot of breaks because you it's first come first serve at these big places. Whereas in France, you know, you have maybe less selection of spots, but they're ready to take you when you show up and they'll be very accommodating. You can make it up a little bit more as you go. Except for Domaine du Sauvage, which you need to book ahead on your third pilgrimage. So this stage, 28 kilometers, you've mentioned that you stayed at what is the midpoint. And for people who do want to walk shorter stages, there's a very easy way to break this up because it's just 13 kilometers to Santalban, and then it's 15 kilometers on to Omanto Brock. So very neat and tidy. And if you do want to walk the whole thing, then you have the advantage of Santalban as a great lunch stop where you can go and, and load up on food and, you know, you got couple bakeries, you got a big supermarket on the way out, you got restaurants where you could go grab a lunch. So you got options. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the place where I stayed on the first Camino, La Ferme du Berry, mm -hmm. it's a really wonderful chambre d'hôte that you can stay in. And they have, of course, really delicious local food and the lentil soup, I should mention, also is really excellent. I'm pretty sure you're thinking Omanto Brock with uh, Ferme du Berry. That's right. Yeah. For so for the next stage, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Stayed there the first time and then the second time I just walked on through. I have stayed there the last couple of times as well. And that is definitely okay. the place that comes to mind for me when I think about Aligo. They put on a good show there. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that's the place where I discovered the change that was because <laughs> I tried to pay him in some of that money. And he was like, oh, I don't think this is real. Oh, no. I'm <laughs> glad you could you could drown your bitterness in Aligo. That's a good way to treat it. Yeah. And such delicious wine. I mean, you really feel like you deserve it at the end of the day. And it's nice too, just these two spots, Santalban and Omanto Brock, because in this very rural area, these are actual towns. So you can resupply there are nice churches in both of these stops, some really lovely stained glass in the, the church in Omanto Brock in mm. particular, and more Beast of Jevedon sightings as well. So it's <laughs> it's lurking. It's all the way through here. We're going to finish where you finished this section on one trip in Omanto Brock at Le Femme du Berry. What are some big takeaways or thoughts that you have about the Jeet experience on this route? And I'm asking that in part because, you know, you walked all the way through Spain. So you had the Gide experience, you had the albergue experience. Right. How do you compare those? Like night and day, I would say. <laughs> the first time that I walked, my budget was much tighter. So when I was staying at the albergues, it was nice to have much cheaper accommodation, but the beds aren't as comfortable. And I found that you know, you get less personal interaction with the folks who are running those albergues. You know, you're staying in rooms with like 200 people at a time. I felt more like I was on a conveyor belt type system when I was in Spain. And I felt it really as soon as you cross the border. Mm -hmm. 
that whole attitude changes because that first albergue, once you do your descent from the mountain. In Ronce Valle. Yeah, it's like one of those crazy ones with like more than 200 people probably in those rooms. I much preferred my experience in France and that's why I went back there the second time because I just wanted to spend time with locals and be speaking French and take it easy. And like I said earlier, I didn't want to be racing other pilgrims to each stop. I wanted to do my own Camino. And you've provided resources to other pilgrims. So tell people a little bit about what they can find on solocamino.com. So Solo Camino is really specifically geared towards English speaking pilgrims, because when I walked the first time, I found that that was sort of a limited resource. So I've got really basic information about the route. I have the main stages, which unfortunately does not include a lot of these smaller stops, which we were just discussing, but now I'm thinking I'll probably add those in. It's got some French translations for folks who don't speak any French. You know, it can be a little jarring. Some of the words don't translate perfectly if you're just using Google Translate. So there's that. There's information, a lot of information about injuries, which (laughs) I had some pretty unfortunate experiences, and it's good to go in prepared for that sort of thing. Information about costs, which I also felt was not completely transparent uh, the first time that I went. It's easy to research sort of general How much is my flight going to be? How much am I going to be spending per day? That sort of thing. But there are a lot of unexpected expenses along the way, particularly if if you're not anticipating injuries or having to replace any of your gear that can really add up. So I've got a lot of price information as well. Yeah. Pharmacies. You're not going to have a cheap trip to the pharmacy, unfortunately. No. And honestly, (laughs) if I'm going to give one piece of advice to a pilgrim, it's to get travel insurance. My first time I had to have surgery on my feet actually partway through my Camino. And so if I hadn't had insurance, it would have been 1300 euros. But with my travel insurance, which I think was was maybe a hundred bucks or something for the whole trip, maybe a bit more than that, you know, covered everything. So that was a huge deal. Well, Chloe Rose, thank you for helping me get the ball rolling with the series and talking with me about these first four stages. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Louise Marshall is a retired lecturer in the art history department at the University of Sydney. While her specialty is Italian Renaissance plague images, I would offer that her real specialty is article titles. Among her publications, you can find masterful headlines like Getting Out of Jail Free or Purgatory and How to Escape It in Spanish Art and The Collaboration from Hell, a plague strike force in San Pietro in Vincoli, Rome. You can find her research at sydney.academia.edu slash Louise Marshall. When I first reached out to you, I thought, this is going to sound like a strange request. I'm going to have to explain the whole pilgrimage thing. Yeah. And instead, I didn't really need to. So could you explain what your personal background is, your connection is to pilgrimage and the Via Podiensis? I mean, of course, as a medieval art historian, I know about the pilgrimage and I've taught Romanesque art. And so, of course, I talk about how important pilgrimage is for those great Romanesque churches. And um, my sister did the Camino, the French part, with her children over a number of years when they were very little. 
and they were kind of racing on ahead and she was, you know, <laughs> going behind. And she talked so warmly about it and said she wanted to finish it, you know, do the Spanish part. And so I said, well, I'm going to come. I've always wanted to do that. And so we actually walked from Saint-Jean to nearly Burgos uh, a couple of years ago and had a wonderful time, but she had not practiced enough carrying her pack and she mm. got problems with her feet. She got uh, whatever they call stress fractures, multiple stress fractures. So we had to stop. And in the meantime, I'm going back to, uh, I'm going back overseas for the first time since COVID started. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to Italy to lead a tour. And I thought, I'm going to go and do some of the French Camino because I'm there in Italy, <laughs> you know, and I'm hooked on doing the Camino. So I have actually literally just been planning my Camino, starting from Le Puy. Originally, I was just going to go to Conque, but the more I read and the more enthused I got, now I'm hoping to get as far as Moissac and I'm doing it in about three or four weeks. So I'm so looking forward to it, you know. I, mean, I think that's what happens with the Camino. You do it and it just hooks you, you know. That's absolutely the case. And I enjoyed your guidebook so much. I have your <laughs> I have your French guidebook and I've got it on my phone and I can read it at night and you know, it's been very inspiring. So I'm sure I speak to for many readers and users to say thank you very much. That's very nice of you. You write well and it's nice and clear and you know, so it's all good. Thank you. I appreciate that and as the Spanish say, the, the world is a handkerchief. We are all connected somehow, so it's fun to see this connection as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, yes. We're going to talk about the saint, Saint Rock, as he's awkwardly referred to yeah. in English, Saint Roche on the, the French way. Well, Saint Rocco, yeah, yeah. Saint That's Rocco right. in Italian, yeah. Let's start just kind of with the legend. Yes. What do the legends say about Saint Roche? I should explain, I come to this as a Renaissance art historian and I work on plague imagery. So imagery that has been generated, that's been created by Italian Renaissance communities in response to this experience of plague. So they're all about images asking for protection from the saints and from the Virgin. And so, of course, St. Rock is you know, one of the superstars of that uh, (laughs) constellation. And he's an incredibly popular protector against the plague who suddenly sort of just appears in Italian art in the late 15th century. And we know that there are published biographies of the saint from the 1470s. The earliest one we know is published in 1479. And He goes from sort of nothing to incredible fame in a very very short time. And probably because the 1470s and particularly 1478 to 1479 was terrible plague years throughout Western Europe. And just to remind your listeners that bubonic plague and its associated pneumonic and septicemic they're all different types of plague, but, you know, it doesn't just come and end with the famous Black Death of 1348, but plague constantly recurs throughout Europe. At any given location, between three to five to ten years, there'll be another plague epidemic because it becomes endemic in rat fleas and rats and it just kind of keeps going and going and going. And that doesn't really change until the 18th century. So, 
heavenly help against the disease is very much appreciated. You know, it's, it's, people are constantly looking for new sources of heavenly help. So St. Rock really fits that bill. And the reason is, I think, because unlike some of the other saints who are appealed to, he himself is said to have contracted bubonic plague. So he is both a victim and a healer because he can also cure plague. And so the story is that he's a French pilgrim and he's en route and he's wealthy and like a saintly child. And, you know, his father dies and he gives away his wealth. And then he goes on pilgrimage and he's going to Rome. Although you do sometimes see representations of rock with other pilgrim signs as well, including the Compostela, the shell. But the story is that he's going to Rome and he gets to Rome and he cures a cardinal of plague. And then as he's going back, and it's a bit unclear where he's going, but he's sort of wandering around Italy and there are uh, plague epidemics and he goes and cures people in hospices, so like community hospitals. So he, you know, cures whole towns of plague and then including uh, famously Aquapendente. And then when he's in a, a town in sort of central North Italy, Piacenza, he himself contracts plague. And he, he, he feels like a dart in his thigh because plague was often conceptualized as heavenly arrows striking mm. people. So some of the stories say he feels a terrible wounding in his thigh and he hears a voice saying to him, my rock, you know, you've done much, but you must suffer more. And it is this idea that physical suffering is a way of imitating the sufferings of Christ. He's ultimately expelled from the town and he goes and lives outside of the town of Piacenza. And of course, the Renaissance idea is anywhere outside a town is a wilderness. So they <laughs> often talk about rock in the desert, you know, but it's it's just like not being in a town. It's the non-urban setting, which for urban Italians is nowheresville. And God causes rain to fall so that he doesn't die of thirst. And then the dog of a local nobleman steals bread from his master's table and brings it to St. Rock every day so that he has something to eat. So I like to say he has canine delivery service. <laughs> and then, you know, he suffers and then gains a, a disciple when the aristocrat to whom the dog belongs follows the dog. And then he's ultimately cured by divine decree because he has endured his suffering so much. And then he leaves his disciple and he goes sort of off on his pilgrims again. And it's never really said where he's going and the kind of geography of it is very confusing. And then somewhere in later retellings, it is Montpellier, where he's meant to have been born in later retellings. He is arrested as a spy during, you know, a military conflict and thrown into prison in the town where his uncle is governor, but nobody recognises him. And so he lives unrecognised for a certain amount of years in the prison and then he kind of dies in good odour. But just as he is about to die, an angel comes to him and says, you know, God is really pleased with you. If you want to ask God anything, now is your chance. <laughs> and so he says to God, will you please grant the possibility that if people pray to me, 
that you will heal them of plague. And so God says, fine. And he dies and then his corpse emits a radiance and they realize that he's holy and they find a plaque beside his corpse, which literally says, anyone praying to this saint will be <laughs> delivered from plague. Because how else would you know? This is, this is how you announce that there's a new plague. And he is then buried and becomes the great plague saint. And then there are later elaborations of the legend where he's supposed to have healed a whole town, cured a whole town, uh, the town of Constance, when there was a, a church council there. And then the story goes that that's how his fame spread. So that's the legend. And so then he turns up, you know, he starts being represented in art displaying his plague bubo. Mm. It's the first representation of plague bubos in art, really. Oh. And because of Rock, you see him displaying his bubo, showing that he himself has suffered, but also the fact that he's been cured. And also then you, there are narrative cycles of his life where he is shown healing plague sufferers. And they too are often shown with bubos, which are not really clinically that Correct, but they certainly, you know, this is a new sort of thing in, in Renaissance art that plague bubas are being represented. So that's the story. That's the story. That's the story. And he becomes enormously popular, like huge, 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 huge. And there are churches dedicated to him all over Western Europe. There are religious societies. He's never formally canonized. That is, the Pope doesn't issue a directive because by this time, canonization is a whole kind of formal process and recent saints like St. Francis of Assisi or St. Clare or they are formally canonized by the Pope a certain number of years after they die. Rock that never happens and what's really interesting is that the spread of his cult scholars have shown it's really lay people not the clergy mm. because people are constantly looking for help and his story really appeals, this idea that he has this very disease, but God cures him of it because he suffers nobly. So he's an exemplar of how you should respond to getting the plague. You should say it's God's will. It allows me to experience the sufferings of Christ. If I endure, God will cure me. And if particularly if I pray to St. Rock, then Rock will intercede on my behalf and I will be cured. So he he does become tremendously popular and very many images. And what's actually also really interesting in terms of the Camino is that many chapels, I've been reading particularly about the French Camino, that there are many older chapels that were, say, dedicated to St. James, who is, of course, the Compostela saint, but often they've been rededicated to St. Rock later on because his cult continues on into the 17th century. So that many of the chapels that you will go past that are dedicated to St. Rock on the French Camino were dedicated to other saints previously. But so his cult has endured as an enormously popular healing saint. And I wanted to ask something related to that because you mentioned before that you can see St. Rock appearing wearing the same pilgrim apparel yes symbols of james and i think there are a lot of people who are walking on the via podiensis on the french branches of the camino 
and they think they're seeing James when they're actually seeing Rock. Right. Because it's James, except he's pulling up. He's dressed as a pilgrim, yes. He's showing you the leg wound. Exactly. Well, the way to tell is, does he have a plague buba on his leg? Like, that's a pretty sure giveaway. And James doesn't usually bear his legs. So if there's any flesh showing, then it's likely to be St. Rock. But, yes, they both wear, or, I mean, James is not always shown as a pilgrim, but, you know, there's a very standard garb for medieval pilgrims or sort of Renaissance pilgrims that gets represented in images of St. Rock very early on, from the wide hat to shield you from the sun and from weathers, the pilgrim cloak, the pilgrim staff, of course, and often a little bag, a pouch or etc. And then the boots, you know, because you've got to walk. And with rock, it's often a short, a shirt and then a, a garment like cut to the knee. And then that he often sort of buttoned down the front so that he could just lift his skirts uh, on one side to expose his plague bubo. And it's interesting that bubonic plague, of course, is lymphatic. You know, it travels through the lymph glands. And so it will be in the groin, but they don't really represent it there because that's too close to the genitals. And so it's usually sort of discreetly moved down the thigh, but it's still in the thigh. It's not usually anywhere else. It's not on his neck, which is another place you do get plague bubos, or under his arm. So that's why you always see it. And there's always just one on his thigh. Yeah. So look for the leg and look for the dog. Yeah, look for the leg. Absolutely. And then the dog, that's right. The earliest images of St. Rock don't include the dog, but from, you know, the 1490s or so, it starts to be that you see the dog with the bread. It's quite funny that in the narrative cycles of St. Rock, it's like the dog leaves its master and then follows St. Rock, so that you will see later episodes of Rock after he's left the area around Pacenza, but you know, the dog attends, even in there is somewhere the dog is in the prison cell with him. Wow. Yeah. So I like that detail that the dog goes with St. Rock. I have that problem on pilgrimage sometimes too. The dogs keep following yeah. you. <laughs> just send them back. <laughs> that's right. Well, unless they come bringing bread. Yes. yes. Right? <laughs> that's, that's a good dog, especially if it has the impulse control to not drool all over the bread. Before oh, yes, it gives I was going to say, of course, not all, but you can't be squeamish when you're a starving saint. You know, you take what God delivers. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's parallels between James and Rock. And we know that the gap between the historical record and the legend of James is a mile wide. That's right. Is the same true for Rock? I have to say I don't know as much about the cult of St. James, whether he's an actual historical person or not. I'm presuming, yes. But in the case of St. Rock, he's a fiction. Unfortunately, he did not exist at all. But in a way, I find that even more moving because it's as if he's created out of need. Mm. There is a St. Rock, but he is a, you know, bishop, an early Christian bishop who is in Aquitaine or somewhere like that, a, a French bishop, or maybe actually even Bishop of Autun. And he's appealed to against tempests. And the argument is, and it's been pretty conclusively demonstrated, there's a Belgian hagiographer who has done most of the work on this, Pierre Boll, who 
has demonstrated that what used to be thought of as a late record of an early life of St. Rock is actually just a recycling and condensation of the Italian life of 1479. And so the thing about St. Rock is with other saints like St. Francis of Assisi or Francis Xavier, whoever, you can find documentation, of course, about their life. They lived here, they were born, they had parents, etc. Rock does not exist except in the saintly biographies. There's no record of him outside. We have no independent historical confirmation of his existence. And then this Belgian hagiographer has discovered that there is another saint rock who is venerated against tempests. And he argues that the pilgrim saint rock is a hagiographic doppelganger. And it's caused by a kind of linguistic slippage between tempest and pest, tempet, you know, and pest. And he has even been able to show, has the documents to show, that in the early 15th century, there is a plague epidemic in southern France. And the town fathers, the uh, officials, uh, say, let's appeal to St. Rock and let us send, to because we've heard that he's a great intercessor, let us send to the neighbouring town to get the information about his life. So they were willing to take on St. Rock as a plague protector, even though they didn't know anything about him. <laughs> and where the scholar was able to show that that rock who was venerated in the neighbouring town is the Bishop Rock, for whom there's a particular feast day and they've been venerating him in the calendar since I think the early medieval period, like 9th or 10th century or something like that. So it's clear that Rock was, his cult in the early 15th century was created by homonymic confusion between Bishop Rock and the second Saint Rock. And it's also that it was very much, it's like it's a cult on the move so that you can see it being transported from city to city by oral reports by this worked for us, we really recommend him as a plague intercessor. And also it was on the pilgrimage routes that that's how the news of this new intercessor travels. So he's in southern France in the early 15th century, but by the 1460s, he's in northern Italy and it is precisely along, you know, the Via Francigena, the pilgrimage route to Rome, that news of his cult would have travelled. So it is really fascinating and, I mean, I don't want to offend true believers, but I think it has been demonstrated and there are other cases where the Catholic Church has recognised that famous beloved saints unfortunately don't exist. But, you know, I say it, it still makes it fascinating to study because it's precisely about this creative process of how people deal with disaster and what you can come up with, you know, and creates fascinating art as well. And precisely because it's sort of an unregulated cult, it's not being pushed by the clergy, it's being pushed by lay devotees. And so it's a really fascinating cult and really fascinating art to study. So historicity aside... Is Rock the saint of choice if we're trying to fend off COVID right now, or is there a better one? Well, I suppose, yes. <laughs> There's a Saint Corona, you know, people have, <laughs> but I don't know much about her. <laughs> but I imagine that people do. I mean, because obviously bubonic plague, although it still exists, it is 
treatable by antibiotics now. It's endemic in rodents. So you have it in the United States in squirrels and groundhogs and hunters sometimes get it, you know, trappers, people working with skins. But, you know, I think his cult has become more involved in the sort of the idea of charity and pilgrimage, charity and pilgrimage. But I guess COVID could reactivate his cult. Well, this has been perfect. This is everything I wanted to know about St. Rock. I know, you just you just press the button for Louise and, <laughs> and, and it just comes out. <laughs> Super informative. And there's so little that we know that we end up hearing the same little bits over and over again about St. Roche when we're walking in France. Yes. And there's a whole deeper story to it. And I appreciate you sharing it. Yes, thank you. Well, I'm I'm really pleased to be asked. It intersected with so many of my passions. So I'm I really appreciate the request. Thank you. To me, one of the best parts of this exercise virtually rewalking a route in dialogue with other pilgrims, is that you are quickly reminded how many different ways we can make a pilgrimage and still emerge happy, satisfied, and appreciative. I confess that my gut reaction when Chloe Rose mentioned that she hadn't gone to the Pilgrim Mass or the Needle in Lapui on either of her pilgrimages was to howl in outrage. <laughs> Luckily, I did not embarrass myself in that moment. I'm a planner. I flip through multiple guidebooks. I plan and replan my itinerary. I spend months with a trip before I ever embark upon it. When Chloe Rose mentioned waiting until she was in Paris to get her guidebook, the planning angel on my shoulder, or maybe it's the planning demon, was bouncing up and down madly, waving its pitchfork, wondering how you could wait so long to get your guidebook for this trip. But again, there's no right way or wrong way to do this. Well, if we're being honest, we could probably identify some wrong ways, or to put it more delicately, some ways that lead to some uncomfortable learning opportunities. So let's just say there are many right ways to do this. And I hope as we move through this series of episodes, you find people whose approaches resonate with you. Many of us have that voice in the back of our heads, questioning whether we're doing this the right way, whether we're actually good pilgrims, whether we're all just imposters faking our way through it. And maybe the last part's kind of true. Yeah, we're all faking our way through it and trying to find our way. The amazing thing, though, is that for all the different approaches, philosophies, priorities, and values, we tend to end up in the same place. It's a good one. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Chloe Rose for speaking with me about the first chunk of the Via Podiensis. You can find Chloe Rose at solocamino.com and chloeroserights.com. Thanks as well to Louise Marshall for laying out the legend of Saint Roche, Saint Rock. She can be found at sydney.academia.edu/louisemarshall. All episodes of the Camino Podcast can be found on Spotify, Google, Apple, and SoundCloud. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com and through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thanks as always for listening. Back with more next week.